Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm joined by Rich Fernandez for today's episode of the Meta Hour podcast. Rich is the CEO of the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, a nonprofit organization developed at Google that now offers Google's mindfulness and emotional intelligence curriculum to communities and organizations around the world. Rich also co-founded Wisdom Labs, an organization that brings the science of mindfulness, resilience, and thriving into organizations. Rich also has a decade of experience working as a learning and leadership development executive in the financial services sector at J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and at Bank of America. 
Rich was trained as a psychologist and received his PhD from Columbia University. And he's an author and frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review. He's a neuroscience enthusiast and a longtime trained and certified mindfulness practitioner and teacher. So welcome, Rich. Hi, Sharon. It's great to be here. It's great to talk to you. I usually like to start these conversations with just hearing some of the background of your story and what first brought you to the path of mindfulness and meditation. I think when we first met, you were still at Google, uh, and you hadn't yet formed Wisdom Labs. Yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah, I was the uh, head of executive education at Google, uh, looking after leadership development for the senior leaders at Google globally. Um, and, you know, it was interesting because I was actually on a meditation retreat uh, with our friend John Kabat-Zinn mm-hmm. and, and Will Kabat-Zinn and um, just really had the sense that uh, this, this was it, right, that, this, that the, the ground of mindfulness was where I wanted to spend all of my time really working. And uh, that signaled for me a shift where um, at that point, this was about six years ago, I decided to leave Google and um, start Wisdom Labs and now eventually come to Silly mm-hmm. to really offer the tools of mindfulness to uh, communities, organizations, businesses around the world. Um, you know, though, to answer your question, it's interesting for me, mindfulness has been a part of my life from very early on. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, so I would trace people have sometimes asked, you know, when is the first time you really exercised mindfulness or meditated? And I actually can remember when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I went to a Catholic school and I remember, and I, I, was growing, I grew up in Manhattan, in New York City, and so I could just walk to school. And I remember I liked to go to school about 15 or 20 minutes early to stop into the church because no one was there and it was really quiet and really still. And I remember just enjoying sitting there, um, you know, right around the middle school years, kind of a chaotic time. I remember just enjoying how quiet and still it was. And so I would often make a point to just go early. Of course, I had to convince my mom that I was actually going to church. Are you really, what are you really, there is no service happening. Um, I said, well, exactly, mom. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's quiet. And I, I just like to do that before class. So, you know, I, I would only do that a couple of times a week and not every week, of course, I was a kid, but I do remember that as a really important uh, sort of moment where I learned kind of the, I guess, the power of the pause, as they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then carrying forward, I learned formal meditation uh, in college, uh, you know, when I, when I was introduced to meditation and how you can sort of actively cultivate it through this quite rigorous process, actually. I really appreciated the structure uh, mm-hmm. that that provided. And so that really began my journey that I've, I've pretty much been on ever since. And I'm really curious that when you sat with John and Will, yeah. um, what moved you to sort of uh, particularly bring the process and the tools into business? Had you seen just a lot of suffering within business or stress or or what was it? Yeah, well, you know, so the story uh, really goes even further back than that because, as I mentioned, I had been a mindfulness and meditation practitioner Mm -hmm. pretty much all of my adult life. And then I went into the field of psychology, and after getting my graduate degree, I went into industry and, and worked in financial services. Then I went over to eBay, mm-hmm. um, where I was the head of um, learning and organization development. 
Um, and this was right around the time of the financial crisis. So this mm. is 2007, 2008. And I saw a lot of people suffering to that, to the point. And I realized that what I had been doing privately as my own mindfulness practice was so beneficial to me as sort of a, a foundation to navigate, you know, mm-hmm. challenging, um, times and circumstances in life that the employees in some ways might be able to benefit from similar practices. So this was back then, and I started to introduce mindfulness in workshops. Um, I invited speakers, and um, the, cor- the courses were wildly popular. The workshops were wildly popular. We mm-hmm. had, at times, hundreds of, uh, of employees coming. I remember George Mumford, mm-hmm. our friend George Mumford, mm-hmm. you know, I invited him to come. And of course, you know, you couldn't, you really use the word mindfulness as openly as you can now, Mm -hmm. because it Mm -hmm. was still kind of weird back in 2007 to bring that to business. But, um, so we just used, you know, the cultivating a mindset of excellence, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. uh, with mindfulness as the foundation. So George came and there were over 400 employees that showed up for this thing. Um, so much so that I got in trouble. (laughs) I got kind of called into my boss's office and then asked, you know, why, what are you doing with this mindfulness stuff? Are you trying to, uh, to keep people awake in meetings? <laughs> but my answer was, yes, it's about, it's about waking up, but maybe not in the same way we're thinking. <laughs> You're thinking. I think that's a great ad, though. Stay awake in meetings. Finally. Stay awake in meetings. Yeah, well, you know, to that point, Sharon, it, I had to very much make it relevant to the organization. So um, I did take the liberty of bringing, um, sending pre-surveys and post-surveys to all participants in these things. And what we found is that, in fact, they really did benefit. Mm-hmm. At least they self-reported that they um, found a lot of usefulness and meaning um, and um, inspiration um, in, in the tools that were being offered. And they were really grateful that the company was offering them. Mm-hmm. And that was important because that started to get to um, an important business metric called employee engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, people felt like they were being invested in. They felt like they could invest in turn um, their own kind of energies and commitment to the organization. Um, and so the, it, it appeared that the mindfulness workshops were starting to be beneficial. Uh, and I was allowed to continue the experiment grudgingly you know, to help people wake up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but what happened then, Sharon, was um, then I went over to Google um, and, um, like I said, I had this role of, of, um, you know, running executive education and there I was, um, joyfully, uh, invited to share an office with Meng, mm-hmm. um, who, you really interesting. He's, this is a early Google engineer. For those of you who don't know who, uh, essentially with a number of world experts put together a curriculum called search as in Google search, but inside yourself. Um, and it's really about using mindfulness and compassion as a foundation for emotional intelligence. And it was a way to help um, Google employees and, and engineers and you know, analytically minded people just really uh, connect in through mindfulness um, into these so, sort of social and emotional skill building um, uh, qualities. So um, anyway, I, I joined Google and I uh, moved into this office with Meng. We became great friends and we started, uh, I started, I joined him in teaching this curriculum and then bringing my own mindfulness practice there as well. And then, you know, some years later, we were on this retreat, I, like coming back to that retreat with John and Will. And um, uh, so I had been doing that work for a while, which is bringing mindfulness into organizations, into the workplace. Mm-hmm. And... Um, at this retreat, 
you know, I had the experience as often happens of, uh, you know, tremendous kind of, um, peace and space spaciousness, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of settling of the mind, the kind of, um, quieting, um, and at the same time, the kind of opening that can happen, um, so that, um, just a, a feel, just a great sense of, um, it's hard to qualify this, you know, but just a sense of joy, spontaneous joy and well-being. Um, and I knew this was the fruit of the mindfulness practice again, cause I, I, you know, for uh, many years been practicing it and, and could experience that, but specifically on retreat, it's much more readily accessible. Um, and as I was enjoying that, I remember I was doing walking meditation on a deck in the redwood, overlooking the redwoods. The sun was just coming up and I just started to have this feeling of spontaneous joy and well-being. Mm. And I was very much just, you know, kind of immersed in that. And then as sometimes happens, a thought came. Um, and so I went with it, you know, the minute I went with it, of course, the, the, there was a little less joy and, and well-being because <laughs> <laughs> I kind of got kind of swept with this thought, but the thought was that, uh, this experience of wellness, of spontaneous joy, in many ways, is the default state, mm-hmm. um, is our natural state. Um, and, you know, all of the um, qualities of mind, the aggregates, the, the, the ideas and thoughts and circumstances we move through every day kind of um, conspire to help us forget that. And so we fall asleep to uh, this idea, this, this experience of, of you know, um, wellness at the deepest level. Um, and so I just started to realize that that's, that's really interesting that we sort of move off this mark. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that um, in, in the world of work and specifically in the world of business, um, it very much is the case that we're pulled away from that, that we forget that. Um, and I knew because I had almost two decades of experience working in Fortune 500 companies at that stage. Uh, I think I was about 17 years into, you know, kind of a corporate career. And I realized this is so hard to access mm-hmm. on a regular basis. And I think that's why we're seeing so much interest. So I'm musing about all of this. And of course, I'm a little bit out of that kind of um, state of, like I said, just kind of um, full present, mm-hmm. but I'm allowing myself these thoughts because they're, they're real insights, which also is something that mm-hmm. can often arise in the practice. And I realized, you know, we, we probably spend about 40% of our working life at work and there's so much suffering. Yeah. And if we could but bring these tools into that setting, perhaps we can bring some of this experience of spontaneous joy and, and deep abiding wellness into the workplace in a really profound way. And at that moment... I also had a really, really powerful sense that that was then going to be the rest of my life's work. Wow. And that's kind of where, where it happened, how it happened. Wow. It kind of reminds me, actually, of John Kabat-Zinn, who um, tells the story at sitting at the Insight Meditation Society, the, the center I co-founded. Um, yeah. He was do- just doing a retreat, and he had the thought, you know what? You could take all of this outside of the kind of Buddhist languaging and talk about it in terms of stress and science and you can call it mindfulness-based stress reduction. And first you bring it to healthcare, then you bring it to education. And he said, like, this 20-year plan rose up in his mind. So he got up, and he wrote it down, and then he did it, you know? so mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Well, and John is, you know, one of my foremost teachers, as, yeah. as are yeah. you. Um, and um, it's uh, been a great inspiration to um, to just learn about how these tools are really a, a 
fundamental human inheritance mm-hmm. uh, and that they can be really connected in to through any any kind of arena um, whether like you said it's education or healthcare or you know in the case where I have the most experience mm-hmm. in organizations mm-hmm. business settings um, it's really possible it's accessible and I think there can be some real measurable I know there can be some real measurable impact we've seen that mm. I want to talk to you about that in a minute but first to step back yeah. into yeah. the value of well-being because mm-hmm. yeah. um you know, it it perhaps should not be a controversial topic, and yet it is. You know, like I wrote one book, which was called Real Happiness, and that was not it was not the intended title. It just something happened, so at the last minute we needed a title, and the publisher <laughs> chose Real Happiness. And oh, I love that. And I that's thought, funny. oh, okay. You know, like on the one hand, I thought that's great. That's what we all really want. You know, we want some sense. Uh, each of us, we want a sense of happiness. We want sense of belonging in our bodies and our minds with one another on this planet. We want some sense of having a home somewhere, and we want that. And, and we get so confused about where happiness is to be found, and we hear so many kind of crazy messages, and we believe them. And, you know, uh, on the other hand, I thought, I'm going to get into trouble for this. And I did. You know, I went on tour with the book, and mm-hmm. people would say, oh, happy, because in our many people's minds, happiness is something superficial. It's selfish. Um, it's, you know, uh, removed from your actions, maybe. Like, I can do anything, doesn't matter. I'm going to sit at home and be satisfied with myself, you know. And, <laughs> and um, you know, I was touring with a book from town to town, and people would say things to me like, uh, didn't you ever see the bumper sticker that says, if you're not depressed, you're not paying attention? And and I'd say, <laughs> well, yeah, I did see it, and I understand it. But, you know, what about when we are depressed and we feel overcome and we're exhausted and we're we're burnt out? Not only are we not serving ourselves, we're not serving anyone else. We just don't yeah. have it in us to care about someone, to try to make this world a better place, to even listen to somebody. So happiness, I saw as a sense of resource inside, you know, and wherewithal. Um, um, you know, then my next book was actually called Real Happiness at Work, which was even worse, you know. <laughs> people, people would say to me, we're not supposed to be happy at work. That's why we call it work. If you're supposed to be happy, yeah. we'd call it play. And and somebody said, you know, you're saying we're supposed to have fun all day long at work. And I said, well, I don't define happiness or real happiness as having fun all day long. You know, but, I mean, these are real people, you know, who are working. And as you said, spending an enormous amount of our day, day after day, often at work, outside the home. And, uh, and yet, you know, if we aren't given some tools for – a better sense of community and how to find meaning and how to bring our own values into that workplace, we're sunk. Absolutely. Absolutely. As if you can sort of like check those at the door when you walk into the workplace, mm-hmm. right? I think that's the assumption when you hear those kind of narratives about the fact that work isn't the place for those things. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what, what, who, who's showing up to work, right? right. The whole person is right. showing up to work. Right. If they don't check their values, they don't check their sense of purpose and uh, meaning and and well being at the door when they when they log in, you know. Uh, so, I think it's really important to consider that um, happiness. And I like the way you're describing it, Sharon, mm-hmm. which is really a sense of wellness, a sense of mm-hmm. resilience and thriving, um, as opposed to kind of like a 
pure, you know, unalloyed positivity, right. which I do have problems with, right? Yeah, because yeah. Um, first of all, I think that's a uniquely American construct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. For yeah. those of our audience members that are that are from, you know, not from the United States, I think, you know, you may relate to this, but I just think it's um, it's something in the, the 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 U.S. the American culture that that is about kind of oh, it always has to be positive. Well, no, it right. doesn't, and, right. and life isn't. Um, but life does have and work does have um, qualities in which that we can experience where we can experience wellness, where we can experience wholeness, where we can experience the expression of our values. Um, and I think that is really where we can that's when like you're saying we that's when we can experience happiness when we are in fact fully inhabiting those aspects of ourselves, bringing our whole selves to it, uh, and having avenues to be able to access that. And that's where I think the practice comes in. That's where I think mindfulness comes in, so that we can see clearly, we can distinguish, you know, when we're off our mark, when we're misaligned, um, and then also see solutions, you know, think mm-hmm. about our aspirations, think about our strengths and how we can best apply those, how we can best be of benefit and service as well. Um, and so I think, uh, that's the role of mindfulness is activating all of those qualities and it's a practice. So it's something that can be exercised, um, even when the going gets really difficult, when we're, when we feel really misaligned and unhappy at work, there's always the opportunity to bring in the practice and, you know, true up as I like Mm -hmm. to say. Mm. What does true up mean? Oh, true up means to just realign, to kind of like, you Mm -hmm. know, connect to, you know, your, your core values, your sense of meaning and purpose and ensure that you're kind of there as opposed to, you know, someplace that is really far removed from, um, you know, your sense of wholeness. I'm wondering if you hear the criticism, um, if you've been in this world and so, so much a leader in this world for so long, I don't know if you hear the criticism that, um, someone like me would tend to hear, like, um, you know, bringing mindfulness to corporate America, and this may be a particularly American issue as well, mm-hmm. is just giving people tools to stay um, sort of sleepy, you know, as they're being abused or exploited, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and the kind of um, uh, ethical vacuum that often works in uh, in business or people's projection of that at any rate, and Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that these are just tools for kind of contentment, rather than yeah. looking at a whole picture of how things might change. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's a fair criticism, actually. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very constructive criticism because uh, it's important to ensure that mindfulness, as I like to say, that mindfulness does not become mercenary. Mm-hmm. That isn't that it isn't kind of deployed, quote unquote for the sake of only greater profits and um, only to kind of drive and squeeze more productivity mm-hmm. um, and then forget people. Um, so in my understanding, from my perspective, you know, mindfulness is really about planting seeds of awareness, mm-hmm. planting, um, helping people as well as organizations and the cultures there um, really become aware and become conscious of their work practices you know, and then the um, outcomes of the things of their work as well. Um, so it really does go, it does get down to what are the core values? What is the core purpose of work? Um, what are the outputs and the outcomes of working on these things? 
Uh, and it really comes down to that sense of awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, from the awareness also comes a sense of empathy and compassion, uh, first for oneself, for the folks in the organization, but also the outputs of the organization to the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I think another fair criticism of that is that is highly aspirational, mm-hmm. that, a, that, a, that people within companies, teams within companies, the organization itself becomes more aware and more conscious. Um, but from my perspective, it's a worthy aspiration to have because the alternative is deep unconsciousness. Mm-hmm. The alternative is potentially in that unconsciousness, destructiveness. Um, and we've seen that for a long time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so now I think we're starting to see that when we can bring in awareness and mindfulness and compassion practices into companies, it can actually inform the culture, the outputs and the work practices. And we have many examples of that, right? Companies now that are starting to become um, a little bit more focused, a little bit, some companies, not all, but a little bit more focused on um, the ways they can be of benefit. there's a few different examples of this as well, you know. So one client we worked with for a long time was Salesforce, mm-hmm. and they very much um, brought in mindfulness and compassion practices right into their core culture. They built meditation rooms on every floor. Um, you know, we programmed guided meditations in each of those rooms um, that were accessible via an iPad in the corner, and they can just play in the speakers. Um, at, at their largest customer conference, they would bring in, um, you know, very prominent teachers like Jack Cornfield, mm-hmm. our friend. Tara Brock, and you know, um, one year we worked with them to bring in the monks and nuns of Plum Village oh, nice. to um, teach about compassion, and um, and then you start to see it in their business practice. So they have the one 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 model, um, where one percent of their profits, one percent of their employee time, um, and one percent of uh, equity are all um, put into philanthropy. So that the better the company does, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of more they do. Now, again, you can still argue that you know, well, that you know, that's a kind of a cynical approach because it's really about the company profiting. But again, I would submit that um, it's far better than the alternative, Mm -hmm. first of all. And second of all, this may be aspirational, but I believe that when you start to plant a seed of awareness, and I learned this from one of my other teachers, Thich Nhat Hanh, Mm -hmm. that seeds of awareness blossom, right, of Mm -hmm. their own accord once they're planted. Um, They require nurturing and practice, but they start to blossom because the alternative is to not plant seeds of awareness mm-hmm. and to allow, um, you know, business and organizations to just kind of be profligate and to just do whatever they can. That growth is the only and primary driver of business success. Mm-hmm. I think there's many other aspects that contribute to a successful business that can also grow, that can also enjoy great success. Um, so I can tell you at Google, for example, our core philosophy around uh, people, what, or core aspiration, was described as building the happiest, healthiest, and most productive workforce on the planet. Mm. And the idea is you can't get to number three if you don't take care of one and two, happy and healthy. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's important for businesses to be productive, but if productivity is the only thing and growth is the only thing, then it really becomes toxic because one of the only things that grows unabated um, and unchecked in nature is cancer. Mm. Right. And so that's the danger. And I think in part, it's not a panacea. It's not going to be a silver bullet. That's going to solve everything. But I think in part, 
bringing in mindfulness and compassion practices into the workplace start to shift the lens, the, the mindset, the perspective of businesses themselves and business cultures. At least that's the hope, and that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's a perspective that informs the work that, that I and my team and um, you know, my colleagues, we all engage in. It's a beautiful aspiration. I mean, I, my own experience has not usually been on that level because I haven't had like a whole program always. Sometimes I have, you know, going into an organization. But um, that leaves the people, you know. And my, so my response is like people are people. You know, I've yeah. never had an employee anywhere in a whole variety of organizations um, say to me, I want to use these tools to be like a more soulless productive, you know, richer, um, uh, get ahead of everybody else. Every single person says something like Mm -hmm. they talk about their child, their teenager they're worried about or their mother who's getting older or their alcoholic cousin or, you know, or just the stress. They're not sleeping or, um, you know, they want to have a better family life or something. You know, people are people. And and, uh, I, I don't see any reason to withhold these tools. Yeah, you know, from people because exactly. they work in a certain place. Yeah, exactly. That's a that's a great way to describe it. Exactly, and by the way, they are good for business too. So we don't want to lose that fact. In fact, it's a strength to build on. So if you see rises in employee wellness, you also see rises in uh, things like you know um, operating profits of businesses. Mm-hmm. That's also true. Right. And I think that, again, fairly is where the criticism comes in. Oh, you're just helping the businesses be more Mm -hmm. profitable. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, they do get more profitable, but people are also getting better. Right. So are the two necessarily binary? Can do they have to be split off? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, that's a that's a core question that goes to values uh, of the business itself. So if people are getting uh, feel better because of these things and, you know, they're helping the business succeed, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, I think one of the great things about the silly program, as it's known, Search Inside <laughs> Yourself Leadership Initiative, um, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> is that it's pretty um, uh, holistic. You know, you're talking about communication skills. You're talking about yeah. emotional intelligence skills. So it's not just a kind of sort of feel-good, reductionistic, do this exercise and you'll get through the day better, you know. Right. Uh, it, it's you, you you learn skills that really help you talking to a colleague, talking to a supervisor, uh, whatever it might be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I think for us, what we see is that the mindfulness, empathy and compassion skills that then the outcome of which are is emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're both intrapersonal, which is within the self. So they do start as a foundation for a found, with a foundation of reflection you know, um, some meditation, some, some related um, mental exercises of that sort, but then they extend to the interpersonal and they really go to then how people are able to in, engage, to listen to one another, because listening is itself is a skill, mm-hmm. you know, mindful listening, um, how they're able to respond versus react to others, um, which is what we like to call response flexibility, and then how they also engage in difficult or challenging conversations, which happen all the time in the workplace, mm-hmm. uh, because by definition of people's roles, they will often have conflicting agendas. Great. And so how do they negotiate and navigate those? Well, that's, again, where the tools of empathy and compassion, mindfulness, they all have a part to play. 
So in our SIY program, um, we absolutely teach people the kind of self-reflection tools, the contemplation self-awareness tools, but we also teach them the empathy uh, and compassion, the listening and conversation tools um, that are all based on mindfulness, empathy, and compassion that really help them navigate kind of social uh, the social and emotional landscape, um, which is really present in business, which we don't often also talk about, right? Because it's like, oh, yeah, I leave your emotions at the door. Well, that doesn't happen. Um, people do have emotions at work, at least one a day. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, I mean, you got you to gotta just deal with it as it is, right? Uh, people are whole people at work. And these tools were really developed, like I said earlier, at, at Google because um, the feeling was um, our analytically minded folks there, you know, could use them, right? Um, and um, also that um, emotional intelligence, mindfulness, and compassion are actually skills. Mm-hmm. And like any skills, you can develop them with practice. And then it becomes a question of, well, what's the, what are the practices? And then that's what we teach. We teach these skills as useful mental habits um, and that can be learned and that can be developed. Do you find any kind of resistance to using the word compassion? Like I asked George Mumford, for example, who's been working with sports teams for low these many years. You know, I said to him, mm-hmm. do you use the word mindfulness? And he said, now I can, you know, because of the research and the kind of validity, you know, that's happened um, because of the research. And I said, do you use the word compassion? He said, that's too much. But mm-hmm. I knew he must talk about the skill. And so I said, what do you say? And he mm-hmm. thought for a moment, and then he said, I say, don't be hating. You know, don't be hating uh-huh. on yourself. Don't be hating on others. Um, yeah. But I'm wondering, do you just come right out and say compassion? So compassion is uh, very much like mindfulness was. I think it's becoming much more in currency these days. And especially because if you frame it in terms of this, this gradual build as to why compassion is important um, for leadership as well as in business, um, it really starts to make sense to people. So when we talk about compassion and we work with compassion in our curriculum, we really start with the foundation of mindfulness, building that awareness within oneself, and then we talk about how to extend it uh, to others. Um, and then that's the part where we can start to bring in the notion of empathy and compassion. Because one of the outcomes of our program, other than wellness, is effective leadership. And leadership here is being understood as a verb, as something that is enacted, as a skill that's being enacted. So when we really drill down on leadership, we start to talk to people about um, how leadership really entails building trust and psychological safety, because we know that those are core factors that contribute to effective leadership, and that uh, in order to, and also influence once you have the trust and psychological safety, you can really start to work with teams and, and guide culture. And so taken from that perspective, empathy and compassion in particular are critical skills because empathy allows for, of course, the perspective taking and understanding and then of others mm-hmm. um, and of the broader team and culture. And then compassion allows for that question around what would be of greatest service and benefit to others. Mm -hmm. So those qualities then engender the trust, the psychological safety, the influence that make for effective leadership. So when we frame it that way, 
then we then is that is when we can start to really um, engage in the conversation about compassion. Mm-hmm. And then importantly, it's not only a conceptual conversation. Like these are the terms. Here's the definitions. All sounds good. Empathy is perspective and understanding. Compassion is service and benefit. Well. Um, how do you actually experience that? How do you cultivate that as a quality and a state of being as a leader? So then we have them engage in experiential practices that start to touch in to that skill set and help them really think about how they can bring it forward for their teams. And by the way, I I appreciate that George says that you can't always talk directly about Mm -hmm. compassion, but Mm -hmm. I also want to say that um, you know, and it, I think it's starting to become much more in currency. Uh, so uh, I live here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and our basketball team, the Golden State Warriors, just won their third championship mm-hmm. in four years. They're officially a dynasty. They're one <laughs> of the all-time great teams. And very publicly, they say our four team principles are joy, mindfulness, compassion, and competitiveness. So even hyper, especially high-performing teams, you see that they, yeah. they really value these qualities. Steve Curry. Yeah. I know the name of like one player a decade or something. So he's my decade. Um, Well, I think, you know, going back to George for a second, um, you know, I think one of Phil Jackson's great um, principles was think like a team, you know, and even when you have these like brilliant superstars who strive for individual excellence, that can't be all they're doing. They have to think like a team. And so that kind of brings up compassion and empathy automatically, even if you don't use those words, which is very interesting. But I feel like I need to check in with you maybe like once a year, say, how's it going now, you know? Yeah, I'd I'd be happy to. Well, I think we see each other roughly at least once a year for retreats and other things. So absolutely. And I think I just wanted to comment on that, Sharon, because I think the notion really is exactly as you say, which is how do you move beyond the self? Mm -hmm. How do you move beyond the self? And I think that cultivating empathy and compassion really starts to move one in that direction. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's so effective for, you know, leaders and for teams in general. And another thing I wanted to ask you about um, was resilience because, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I do some amount of work uh, with caregivers, whether it's in one's personal life or professional life, you know, um, people who are working on the front lines of a lot of suffering, humanitarian aid workers, domestic violence, shelter workers, um, yeah. you know, teachers, nurses, all kinds of people. And so resilience is just this core, core uh, issue because, you know, I, I've also been interested to see kind of the movement for more empathy training, which I consider mm-hmm. crucial and wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. But these people have a lot of empathy, you know, they're burning yeah. out for some other reason. And I haven't really thought much about resilience in the world of business, you know, and the pressures and the hours and the sense of performance and success or failure. And, but it must be there, right? It's critical. Yeah. Having resilience, um, in the face of daily, because the challenges are daily, Mm -hmm. um, is, is absolutely critical. 
Um, and we know that, by the way, so we met, that is something we measure in our pro and I could talk at some point um, about the, the kind of metrics mm-hmm, that we're mm-hmm. finding on all of these things because they're really interesting. Um, but one of the things we know from our curriculum is we do see people experience much greater resilience. Um, so um, pre and post program, for example, we know that we see a 16% rise, 16% rise in people's resilience. They respond to this question about facing difficult situations and being able to focus on opportunities. So kind of turning the corner from being stuck on a challenge to, to seeing opportunities within it, we see a rise in that. We see a rise in people reporting that they can bounce back quickly after an emotionally challenging situation, right? Which, you know, probably are, uh, emotionally challenging situations are something that happen daily, mm-hmm. many times a day in um, business settings um, because people are working um, uh, both at, at pace um, uh, with a huge scope, and then with other people who potentially have ch- um, uh, competing agendas. Mm-hmm. And so they're constantly challenged emotionally. And so being able to bounce back from that kind of emotional challenge is critical. And there we see almost, uh, what do we see here? Uh, we see a 26 point increase mm. in people, percentage point increase in people's ability to deal with emotionally challenging situations when they acquire the tools of mindfulness. Um, empathy and compassion and emotional intelligence vis-a-vis our programs. So it's really, um, it really does move the needle on resilience. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. So let's talk about the metrics for a moment. Yeah. Um, Do you study every program that you do or? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So we've been collecting data, you know, we, we have data from um, hundreds and hundreds of participants in over 15 countries because we've been running our program the program was really started at Google 11 years ago, and about six years ago, we spun off the nonprofit institute, Silly, um, and you know have been collecting data ever since. And so we see some really meaningful double-digit shifts in terms of um, not only resilience, but things like leadership, the ability to deal with conflict, to pause before reacting, see double-digit shifts there, um, the ability to focus prioritize what's important, a double-digit shift there, almost a 20 percentage point shift pre-post program um, and noticing and being able to shift distracted states to more focused states. Um, Also there, a 20 uh, percentage point increase. And then stress, reduced levels of stress um, because people have these tools. Um, And then really meaningfully for, for business people, Sharon, I think the ways that this could enhance um, operating profit um, or cost savings, Mm -hmm. basically, uh, and enhance revenue. So we know that um, in some of our client systems, um, there are a uh, roughly uh, a 200% uh, return on investment in some this mindfulness programming um, that we offer. Um, And specifically, that's because we see changes in wellness indexes that translate to greater profits. So let me be specific about that because um, there might be some people who are listening that really want to know exactly what is the case. Mm -hmm. So like in one of our major, major clients where we have literally thousands of employees being trained every year, that's SAP, which is a a German software manufacturer. um, We see that there's about a 9.2% rise in well-being as a result of the SIY program. And then SAP estimates that every one percentage point increase um, in business health culture 
index, which is their, you know, the health of their, their workforce, adds about 85 million to 95 million euros to their operating profit yearly. Wow. Yeah. So similarly, every one percentage point increase in employee engagement translates into a rise of about 50 million euros to 60 million euros yearly in operating profit. And we know that people who go through the SIY curriculum at this particular organization, SAP, experience a 6.5% increase in employee engagement over a six-month period after they've experienced the curriculum. Mm-hmm. So we know that there's some real tie-in uh, between the benefits that they experience and actual operating profit, actually cost savings and then you know, revenue uh, increases for a company like SAP, uh, but as well as many of the other companies we work with. Um, so I think that to translate all that into English, I would just say um, it's good for employees and it seems like good business as well. So tell me um, how it kind of works. So if I have a company and I engage silly, uh, mm-hmm. then what happens? It's a certain amount of weeks or months, right? And then are there yeah. ongoing programs? Are there, is there like continuing education? Do you leave someone at the company, you know, to help troubleshoot yeah. or what goes on? Yeah. So we really like to offer um, live experiences that um, in aggregate uh, last for about uh, two full days. Because in our experience, in order to um, instantiate and form the habit mm-hmm. of mindfulness practice and compassion practice and emotional intelligence, it takes about what would amount to about two full days. Um, So we offer kind of workshop related settings um, in which people can experience this, but we also do digital learning. So post uh, workshop, post live experience, they also have digital learning. Mm -hmm. uh, And what they do is essentially they get um, mindfulness practices uh, over a course of about a month sent over 28 days to their inbox. Um, and then uh, after that, webinars. Um, and so it's kind of a blended learning solution or blended learning approach mm-hmm. that really combines live experiential sessions in cohorts together with digital mm-hmm. learning for the sustainment of the skills. Um, and that's how we find that over time, people are able to like really integrate mindfulness and emotional intelligence practices into their daily ways of working. And then say somebody's done that. And the reason I'm asking, part of the reason I'm asking is because one of the other things I've known you um, very involved in uh, is working with um, implicit bias within trainings. And so is that sort of like an, is that like uh, once you've done the silly training, you might invest in um, a very particular kind of training or is that all woven in? Yeah, no, we also offer much more specific experiences. So what everything I just referred to previously is essentially our foundational mindfulness mm-hmm, and emotional mm-hmm. intelligence offering. And then we have much more focal offerings that draw on those skills to think about, you know, executive leadership mm-hmm. and then organizational culture change, mm-hmm. how to use these skills to really craft a culture that's mindful and compassionate and emotionally intelligent. We have uh, a workshop um, uh, and an offering on using the tools of mindfulness and compassion to address Im- uh, implicit bias, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as you've, as, you, as you've said. And then we even have a workshop called Joy on Demand, um, which is really about, you know, building, using mindfulness as a foundation to build this 
the skills of um, sustainable and lasting happiness, mm-hmm. broadly defined the way you define it, right? Which is to us a mm-hmm. sense of thriving, resilience, and mm-hmm. flourishing. Mm-hmm. Someone could keep. Are you, are you still creating programs? Or? And we're still creating. Yeah, I mean, um, we're 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 uh, just um, even installing the ones that we already have is taking a lot of our bandwidth, but. You know, we are constantly upgrading the content and thinking about different permutations, different versions of the content. Um, and so we're in a state of constant build um, and deploying the core programs. The other important thing to know is that we really um, have increasingly been working through a network of certified teachers of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we train and certify mindfulness and emotional intelligence um, teachers uh, this with this specific approach, you know, the, the Google curriculum, mm-hmm. um, and we train and certify them and um, have um, at the end of next year, we're going to have over 700 uh, certified teachers in over 40 countries around the world. So we really try to get this, um, this curriculum out through our global network of teachers. And then people are welcome to also, of course, like make this their work. Uh, similar right. to the journey that I charted for myself personally, uh, we get a lot of people who say, oh, I want to become a trained and certified teacher. We have roughly about 75 on average people per training cohort, mm-hmm. 75 teachers from you know, different um, aspects of work and, and, and consulting and education who come to get certified and then they bring that back into their arena of work. Um, and um, it's just been a really wonderful thing to see how much interest and um, how sort of sector diverse these tools are being applied by our teachers. Do nonprofits come to you as well? Is that part of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We work with uh, nonprofits. We also work with, you know, cities, state, and federal um, agencies, Um, and so, um, again, these tools are for human flourishing, Mm -hmm. Um, both for wellness and sustaining high performance and effective leadership. And so pretty much any institution anywhere could use doses of that. <laughs> and so we can make say. that happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, absolutely. You know, it's very satisfying to be doing that work, in fact, for this very reason, right? Because yeah. the tools we're offering are, you know, kind of along this dimension of greater mindfulness, greater empathy, compassion, and emotional intelligence. And like you said earlier, you know, who doesn't want that? Great, who, who, great. who couldn't use that? Um, it's only going to make us better. And so it's just such a, I, I'm so, so happy to be doing this work. And, um, you know, I, I said earlier, I left a corporate career to kind of follow this path. And what I didn't say was that, like, I, I'm so happy I did, you know, uh-huh. I mean, not that there's anything, again, wrong with having a corporate job. I did for 17 years and I grew tremendously. Um, but where I'm at now is that I've, I'm pretty much happier than I've ever been and, and feeling so blessed and grateful to be doing this work. So great. Well, one of the things we talked about when we were just doing sound check, which, you know, has not been on the air thus far as, uh, your thought about starting a deli in New York. So I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry that didn't yeah. happen for the sake of New Yorkers. <laughs> it would have been like the happiest deli in the world. You just go in, you cheer up, you have a little conversation. Yeah, um, you're recognized as a human being with innate dignity, whoever you are, you know, there's compassion it. all around. And then you leave with your potato salad <laughs> or whatever it is. <laughs> That's it, Sharon. Well, because we were joking, because I have a PhD, I've never really used it clinically. Uh, I've used it in industry, but really for me, it stands for PH Delhi. And I want to start <laughs> a deli in New York where I grew up um, and to do exactly that, right? To have a, a, a happy place for people to convene. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I do want to keep checking in with you because I'm, of course, interested in the the trajectory of compassion, the very word, and and yeah. our our ability to use it boldly. But really, this has been wonderful. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Sharon. It's been a pleasure, and thank you all for your time and attention. Those of you who are listening, thank and you. And to learn more about Rich and his inspiring work, you can visit www.silly. That's s i y l i. dot org. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com.